Welcome to BachCast, episode number 16. I'm your host, John Hendren. In this episode, we look at Bach's Trio Sonata for Organ, written in the key of E-flat major. So a trio sonata, a Baroque trio sonata was a popular outlet for uh, chamber music in the Baroque era. Uh, what's unique about this piece and the collection that Bach uh, wrote down and thankfully uh, got preserved to modern times is that he wrote the uh, trio sonata for one instrument. And in this case, obviously, we're listening to the organ. Um, this uh, edition that you've been hearing uh, at the start of this episode comes from uh, an errato release by the French organist Marie-Claire Alain. Uh, it was uh, put together kind of as a, a budget two-CD set around uh, 1986, I believe, or that's probably when it first came out. Um, and it's it's kind of a best collection of her uh, playing of Bach for the organ. And she is not one of those um, uh, folks who is obsessed with, you know, historical accuracy. And so the voicing there um, is is a little different. She really goes deep for the bass line you heard in the last excerpt, which was um, the middle movement of the trio sonata in a uh, related key of C minor. But you'll notice that she's doing something intentionally with the registration. Uh, an organ, obviously, if you've seen an organist, you know they are surrounded by buttons or pulls. And these are the different combinations of pipes that can be articulated to give unique uh, sounds. It's kind of like um, in modern day, uh, somebody operating a synthesizer. Obviously, you have different choices of sounds that you can program to be exactly what you want. Well, the organist had that ability on these big organs that would go into churches is to customize the sound. And for this piece, she's chosen a registration that makes the two upper voices in a trio sonata texture distinct. A trio sonata is basically a piece of music written for three parts. And those three parts are two melody instruments and a bass. And the organ, of course, lends itself to this because an organ has multiple keyboards so that one voice can be on one keyboard and therefore have a unique um, set of pipes that it's articulating. And the other hand is on another keyboard and can have another sound and obviously the bass part is being played by the pedals. So this is the first in a collection of six. And as I mentioned, the trio sonata form was um, uh, kind of a mainstay of Baroque composers. If you look at Telemann, if you look at um, uh, Corelli, for instance, Corelli was probably looked at um, as the archetype um, he wrote trio sonatas for string instruments, 
two violins, basso continuo. He did several collections of those. And in his, in his view, he was concerned with two different styles of trio sonata, one being the da camera, or chamber uh, orientation, the other being of the church. And today we don't necessarily believe that um, these necessarily held that you'd only perform one in one space and not the other. It more spoke to the style of the way the movements were put together. You know, if they were dance forms, that would be inappropriate for the church, but we know that composers, even though they may not label them all as dances, definitely picked up on the flavor of dances as well. So Bach is not really concerned here with chamber versus church. In fact, he's not even adopting the, I guess if you're looking at the the chamber format, a four-movement uh, form, which was very popular with his, um, his friend Telemann, Bach chooses a three-movement plan. And the three movements, when you look at maybe an Italian style being the, where he's pointing this to, you know, the Italians were famous for their concertos, and we know Bach was studying Italian concertos. And uh, it wouldn't be too hard for us to say that maybe he borrowed this idea of a three-movement trio sonata from the Italians. So Bach's uh, format here is fast, slow, fast. Um, there's definitely parts of the writing that lend itself to maybe concerto episodes. And if we look at where Bach is getting this idea of, of multiple voices and how he treats them, which is with counterpoint, we don't have to look far. Um, with Bach's inventions and symphonias, or two-part and three-part inventions that are sometimes referred to for the keyboard, um, he definitely was playing with the idea of counterpoint there with two and three voices. So the whole idea of writing for a keyboard instrument using counterpoint and really focusing on the idea or he, what he might refer to as the invention um, is kind of where he comes and approaches these types of pieces. We believe that these pieces were written for the education of his son, Wilhelm Friedemann. Um, and some commentators believe that this sonata in particular was not an adaptation of something else that Bach may have written, but was wholly written for the organ itself. I would invite you to look at the score, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. And the, the score that I've chosen here is not, um, it's not done in modern notation. I always like looking, if possible, at the original, if it exists. And it's written in uh, Bach's hand, at least I believe it is. And what if it doesn't look very long? And one of the reasons is in the second and third movements, Bach is using a binary form, which means he has an A and a B section, and they get repeated. And so obviously that uses half the amount of paper and ink that you need to use uh, if you were writing things out completely. The second thing to note is if it was for a pedagogical reason, was that was that form chosen on purpose? We have to believe that uh, in addition to teaching his son the form of the trio sonata and how it works and how counterpoint can work, maybe he was also teaching him something about improvisation and that in a repeat, we might start changing around things and improvising at the keyboard. Um, of the performances that you'll, that you'll listen to, some performers will take that leap and start to add some things. And some of it might be very tame, 
might be an extra ornament here, an extra ornament there. In some cases, they might go so far as to change the line. And there is a thing about making a recording and doing some of that stuff. Um, taking leaps of faith, adding extra stuff. And I will tell you that being a concert goer and being a, a recording collector, that the recordings always tend to be the more conservative document of the piece, where performers aren't taking those huge leaps of uh, improvisatory freedom to add extra stuff. And I think one of the reasons is um, this is the thing that's going to be listened to multiple times, and maybe it's best to preserve more of the flavor of the original. Certainly when we hear some performers in a live situation, and luckily for us today in 2015, there are so many examples we can find on YouTube of live performances. Um, it's always kind of cool to take a recording that you may have by a performer or a group that you know, see if they have any of those recordings out there. Now, of course, would encourage you to buy the DVDs if, if, they're, if they're available as well. And just check out what happens if you don't have the opportunity to go to a lot of live performances with ensembles that uh, have records out, just to hear the differences, because many times they'll take some chances. So I've given you a, a kind of a taste of what we're talking about here. I'm now going to share with you my favorite recording on the organ of this, of this piece. And this is by the organist Tan Koopman. You've heard me talk of him before. When we looked at the Goldberg Variations, I think I opened with um, Mr. Koopman's reading of the Goldbergs on harpsichord. Uh, Tan Koopman is, is known as um, director of the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra, but definitely his expertise and his uh, artistry has been through keyboard work, uh, both on the harpsichord and the organ. And not only has he recorded the entire organ output of Bach, he's also, um, I believe, just wrapping up his recording project of recording all the music of Buxtehude, who was uh, one of Bach's models, uh, and maybe you could even say when he, one of the superstars in Bach's time that Bach supposedly uh, walked 40 miles to go see and took a rather extended vacation to spend some time studying with Buxtehude. So, without further ado, just as a point of reference, you heard Marie-Claire Alain on the organ, and now this is Tan Koopman. Tan Koopman's project was recorded on the Teldec label, which is another Warner uh, entity, and was reissued at an incredibly uh, nice price. I picked that up through Amazon um, just a few years ago. I had started collecting the Teldec discs, and then they were most impossible to find. You couldn't find the rest of the collection. And so when they packaged it up in a big multi-CD package, I picked it up. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm still kind of going back and rediscovering some of the pieces. Some are new and some old favorites. But uh, this is one of the earlier editions out of that collection. And Koopman's desire is that for that project was to visit various historical organs that had been um, refurbished to kind of get a sense of what organ, the organs sounded like in box time. And because, as I've told you earlier in an earlier episode, all my recordings are in, in storage right now, I can't actually pick up the book and tell you from what church this is from, um, but it is an organ of historical proportion 
in terms of the voicings and uh, the tunings and whatnot. So here's Tan Koopman with the opening of the Trio Sonata Number no. 1 for organ by Johann Sebastian Bach. So like the early recording, Koopman is trying to differentiate the voices by using different voicings for the two keyboards on the instrument. Maybe not to the f full effect that uh, Alain did on her recording, but it's definitely there. And we kind of, if you listen to that uh, that theme that it plays, it's something you can sing, right? And by the, by the time it gets too complicated, you hear it again, right? In the second voice. Bach writes really interesting themes, inventions. He's invented this really kind of cool melodic thing that's going to be expanded and reused, and he, he's going to economize it. And so he's turned to counterpoint to do that. These trio sonatas are as much as a, a lesson on... Um, the trio sonata as a form as it is counterpoint and how to combine voices. This is kind of like a fugue, but it's looser. It's a two, it's a two part uh, construction. You might almost say, well, is it a canon? Well, no, a canon, there are different species of canons, but a canon would take uh, the same music and put it on top of itself. In here, box changing the keys. And you can basically think of this as, as, as two twins chasing themselves around uh, the musical garden. So one starts and the other follows. And together it makes a nice harmonious thing. You think of beautiful flowers if you want. Um, not every composer is going to do this just so tightly. And in fact, when Bach wrote these pieces, you know, just think about the intended purpose. He he didn't publish these. He didn't you know go to Amsterdam or or some big city where they were into publishing and just say here, um, organists around the world are going to want these. That's not the way Bach thought. He thought I'm going to write something that really teach my son or my sons um, really good music. And he could have, for instance, picked up a copy of. Corelli's trio sonatas, rearranged it for the organ. We know he did this. But we also don't know that Bach actually had the means to go out and pick up a set of Corelli. And Corelli by this time would have been kind of maybe thought as slightly old-fashioned. We're talking maybe 30 years, 35, 40 years since Corelli's sonatas came out and here's Bach sitting down. No, he, he invented himself and he's basically showing his his son, the whole, the whole process. I'm inventing this kind of neat line that you can sing back to yourself. I'm combining it. I've got a bass line. We're going to make it so that the, the two upper voices play nicely together. And oh, and by the way, son, we could take the same stuff that we're doing here on the keyboard. I'm teaching how to play the organ and how to keep track of three different lines. 
of course we could arrange this for two violins and basso continuo. Of course. Uh, of course, Bach doesn't give us that many examples of trio sonatas written in that format. Probably the most famous is one we've already looked at, which is the trio sonata from the, uh, the musical offering, BWV 1079, uh, where Bach combines flute and violin. Bach did explore in a couple other examples an instrumental trio sonata, but for this one, um, as I mentioned before, it's believed that it was composed for the organ. And one of the things that happens in the second and third movements is Bach adopts a binary form. Now, if you remember, we've talked about this before. Binary is an A and a B. They typically get repeated. We saw this, for instance, in the Goldberg variations. So many of those variations were in a binary form. And one of the questions that performers have, have been facing and have been uh, thinking about and have been exercising in their performances is what do you do on the repeat? And there is definitely a train of thought that in a repeat, you get to do some creative finger work on your part. You get to improvise. You get to add something because you've already heard the original. And as the performer, as the person who's sitting there, you're not going to simply just take the notes of somebody else and, and read them. You're going to add something of yourself into it. And, of course, this idea bloomed uh, in the late Baroque and certainly became even more um, uh, of a main fixture all the way through the Romantic era, and that's the idea of a cadenza that you would play something that was fixed on a page, and then you're given this opportunity, for instance, as a soloist in a concerto, to really just explode. Locatelli, for instance, the Italian Baroque composer, wrote out cadenzas in his Opus 3 collection, The Art of the Violin. And what was unique to him and his personality is he was well-known as a performer and likely was set out to write out some of the ideas he had. But it's an interesting thing if you're a performer of Locatelli or you're a performer of Bach uh, and something like a cadenza is left for you to play, do you play it as the composer wrote it out? Or, if you're daring enough, do you invent your own? Now, we're not really talking about that here in the context here. There's no cadenzas to be had in a trio sonata. However, what do you do on the repeats? And one of the things I really like about Koopman's reading is he adds some of that extra uh, improvisatory flair that he's probably known for when he comes to the repeats. So right now I'm going to give you a listen of the third movement. This is written in the key of, uh, obviously, E-flat major, but in the time signature of 3-4. So it bounces a little. It's in 3. And uh, for me, this is a very joyous, happy piece of music. So we're coming to the ending of that first A section, and now listen to what Koopman does in the repeat. 
Did you hear it? Well, you shouldn't have, because he kind of played it the same. But let's listen to what Koopman does in this middle movement. That's the slow movement written in the related key of C minor, same number of flats, three flats. And see what he does in the repeat there. So this is the slow movement. So I wanted to let that play for a while so you could just hear the artistry that's Tan Kutman. Number one, the organ does not have an equal tempered tuning applied to it. And so you get some of those harmonies and the thing just crunches. And if you're used to listening to a lot of piano music, for instance, and then you hear that, it's like, ooh, what was, what was that? Is that supposed to sound that way? And to me... That's why composers would write things in certain keys and rearrange them for certain keys. It's because the key chosen would have this flavor uh, on an instrument that had particular tunings. And to me, that's one of the, the beauties of the historical performance movement is that we've been able to experience what that is like. Some of the hidden things that you'd never see in the score, but, but only realize themselves through performance on an instrument of the time. So there was one of those in there and I, I didn't want to interrupt the music for you to uh, miss out on that. What Koopman's doing here, he's adding some figuration. He's adding some ornaments and things that um, definitely aren't in everybody's reading of this, but in the second, in the second movement, this is such an expressive line, right? Um, can't get that low. It just makes it ripe to, play with that line to add all kinds of different things to it. And Koopman doesn't go crazy. As I said, 
recordings tend to be a little more conservative, but he is adding some uh, some of his uh, own uh, improvisatory gifts to the line, which is some might think is bold. You're playing Bach, how dare you? But I think uh, I think Bach would approve. I just have this feeling that uh, that way that that line was invented is just calling out for more uh, more expression, kind of turning up the volume, if you will, without. Um, turning up the volume not with the actual sound volume, but turning up the volume of uh, the emotional impact it can have on you. And of course, in the Baroque era, they call this affect. Um, and so that's that. Just an interesting tidbit, I think, when you look at performances, something to listen for. Um, if you didn't know this piece was written this way, you might understand well, is the music I'm hearing really box, or is it somebody else's, the performance, and how dare they add that? You've got to understand the context. Here's a musical form, a binary form, and we believe today that, um, and I will say the 100% of people don't agree with this, but it's believed that when you had a repeat, you had the opportunity to add something to it. And so Tom Koopman on organ does that. Now, I mentioned these are trio sonatas, and they're written. this one in particular is written for the organ. And we've also kind of dabbled a little bit, maybe in thinking, well, could you arrange these for different instruments? And so if you were to do a search on a, a musical uh, shopping place like iTunes Store or uh, Google Play or Amazon.com, and you were to search for Bach trio sonatas, you're going to see that people have rearranged these. It's actually been a popular thing. Starting in the mid-90s, uh, people started putting out recordings of these pieces. And so I want to highlight uh, two of them for you that play with BWV 525. The first one comes from a recording. Um, I'm going to pull up my notes here. So 1994, new group had just formed young violinist just gets out of school. Her name was Rachel Podger, and the group name was the Palladian Ensemble. And the Palladians put out this uh, release for Lynn Records of Bach trio sonatas, and they were arrangements of the organ pieces. So what do you do when you arrange something? Well, think of a basso continuo, the bass line. In the organ pieces, there's no figuration. Nobody is expected to sit there along with the organist and realize the bass line. It's basically just the bass, it's just the pedal, pedal line that Bach has written out. But if you were to arrange this for another instrument and you were going to include a keyboard or a lute or even a, you know, viola da gamba can play chords, right? Um, you'd expect to see these little figures, these little numbers written above the line. And so Bach hasn't done that. But if you're going to perform these pieces and you're going to use instruments like the Palladians do, which is a viola da gamba and a lute as the bass line, um, you got to know what kind of chords to fill out. And so they had to go through that process of analyzing the music, figuring out the harmonies, and figuring out what to play so that chords could be heard. And I think you'll hear that with William Carter's uh, The Orbo in this recording. The other thing you have to think about is the key. And the key Bach wrote in, obviously, he had basically any, he could write in any key in the organ he wanted to, except that the tuning might get in the way. Um, so he writes this in E flat. And when folks rearrange these or attempt to play them in other instruments, they may choose to 
move the key center. And so there's, there's different choices people make. Um, and that's going to sound different when you've listened to the organ version and you skip over to a non-organ version. The Palladians choose the key of G. The key of G is a little easier to play on the recorder. Um, it's a little easier to play on the violin, perhaps. And it, it lends itself, I think, to the character of the music. Um, happy, really happy, joyous music gets associated with the key of G major, especially in the Baroque period. And G major seems very appropriate for the character of those outer movements. Um, that means that the middle movement would be in the key of E minor, carrying one sharp. And so it seems to work for these guys. And what you'll notice it, that some may think of as a limitation of the organ. Um, I know I mentioned at the very start that uh, Elaine chooses to give very different character to the two hand parts in this piece. So obviously the Palladians are not playing on the same instrument. They're not playing two violins. It's a violin and um, Pamela Thor Thorby um, plays on a recorder. So these are instruments known to Bach. Uh, if Bach were to hear these, you know, this is not an unplausible arrangement by any means. Um, I, I question how much the lute played into Bach sound world. Um, to me, I think of it more of as an Italian instrument. Uh, Bach did leave behind some lute works for us. However, uh, there is controversy whether that was actually for the lute or something called the Lautenwerk, which was a lute sounding keyboard instrument that we don't have a lot of examples of. Um, it's been kind of a reconstructive process. So I don't know that the lute really plays into Bach sound world as much as maybe a cello would, but um, these are very talented musicians, and I'll give you a taste of what they did with that same middle movement um, and what giving the expressive lines, the expressive invention that Bach gave to us here in, in different hands does to the potential of the line. I, I think this is a win-win for us to hear uh, arrangements like this, and um, when we stay in Bach sound world, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Thank you. 
So that's a really nice reading, I think. I really like the um, the style they choose. And I, I let the, the repeat just start there so you could hear it. They don't really indulge in trying to rewrite box lines at all, to the extent that Koopman takes those chances and does on the organ. Um, as a, as a form of comparison, I'm going to l let you listen to a little bit of the repeat. Starting at the repeat of the middle movement, this is performed by another ensemble, London Baroque. This came out about four years after the Palladians recorded theirs. And if you know London Baroque, they, they don't indulge in wind instruments. They are a string group. And so uh, this texture is with two violins as the upper uh upper voices, and we get cello and harpsichord as the basso continuo, more or less kind of a traditional approach, at least in um, modern uh, interpretation of Baroque music that was typically with cello and harpsichord is, is, a, is a pretty standard way to look at things. And this has been rearranged in the key of F major to accommodate the instruments. And so uh, F has one flat, so we'd be looking uh, at the key of D minor for the middle movement. you hear it? They are kind of sculpting a little bit to be different. They are adding something. Um, and what's, what's interesting is uh, one actually played uh, a couple extra notes and then uh, the other line is adding some uh, ornaments on notes. And typically when you, when you hear that, the, the understanding is if you're going to play, let's say, uh, box invention um, for keyboard, any one of the 15. You know, if you introduce something in one hand and then that same theme is following in the left hand, that if you added a trill or a mordant or, you know, pagiatura, you would do the same thing in the other hand, and here they don't. And to me, it's, it's kind of an interesting interpretive decision. Um, when you have a lead player, let's say the first part, and they do something, uh, there's kind of an expectation that, oh, now that you've heard your partner has done that, now it's my turn to try to imitate it, or maybe even do something even more interesting than they did, kind of this back and forth. They choose here and said not to do that, but but by having um, one of those voices uh, with their line adding something the other doesn't, it helps to further differentiate the two voices as distinct. And when you're playing on instruments that are very well matched, this ensemble, um, the, the two, the instruments, the violins sound very similar. Uh, it helps to have a stereo recording where, you know, you've got one person sitting on the left and one person on the right to differentiate a little bit. And obviously, if it was a live performance, the visual of of people playing and, and when they were playing it and be able to see that would help you again differentiate the voices. But they've they've chosen this decision to go maybe more of the classical route, uh, to take the uh, the sound world maybe more of Corelli. 
and applied here to BWV525, Box Trio Sonata for an organ. I'm going to finish by letting you just hear a little more of London Baroque. Uh, this is the third and final movement. To me, uh, no matter who performs it, uh, you can't escape the desire, I think, to want to tap your foot. Uh, I think it's an example of Bach's best. Uh, no matter what hardship he dealt with in life, uh, in terms of his job, um, he could produce music that this was just fun music. And this is how he ends his first trio sonata. And again, this is performance is by London Baroque, recorded on the BIS label. And again, this came out in 1998. <laughs> I'm your host, John Hendren. Thank you for listening to episode number 16 of BachCast. You can find more episodes, including show notes on this episode, at bieberfan.org, spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G.